Today we're going to start uh, a new series on the book of Hebrews, and uh, the title is Jesus is Better. And if you ever read through the book of Hebrews, you probably notice it's a little bit of a different kind of letter. It can seem a little bit confusing. The audience it's written to is the ancient Jews, which none of us are, and some of those contexts can be lost to us today. It can be hard for us to understand. Now, scholars aren't sure who wrote this uh, letter, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Barnabas, but we do know that the author had a close relationship with the disciples, and we know that the uh, teachings in this book are anchored deeply in the teachings of Jesus. We also have a really good idea about the time period that this letter was written because the temple and the temple practices were still in effect at the time that this letter was written. So it was before the Roman general Vespasian destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. So this letter was probably written about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Imagine what that would have been like living in those ancient days right at the beginning of this new thing called the church, hiding at times from persecution and also, though, excitingly sharing your faith with anyone that would listen. This book talks a lot about the Old and the New Covenant, how things were in the Old Testament and how things are now because of Jesus. And the author expects the audience to have an in-depth knowledge of the Old Covenant how Abraham founded the nation of Israel, Moses getting the law on Mount Sinai, the tabernacle and the wanderings in the wilderness, all those events that are found in the first five books of your Bible, which the Jewish people refer to as the Torah. This letter was written to the Jews that were following Jesus, living in a time of persecution and suffering. And the author's purpose is to tell them that even in the face of trials, Jesus is better than anything. So let's jump in and the first verse of chapter one in your Bible in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to plow through some of these verses and look deeply at them. So if you turn there, we're going to look at the first three verses to start with. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, it sounds like the beginning of a Star Wars movie, right? It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also, he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This book of Hebrews, you're going to see, there's no way we could possibly go through this whole book in four weeks. There's so much chock full in these verses. See, the Old Testament was written over the course of about 1,500 years from Genesis to Malachi, 39 different books written in different locations, different cultures, and different situations. And over the course of that time, God spoke to his people in many different ways, through the prophets, through angels, through visions, symbols, parables, and poems. But in these last days, he speaks to us through 
Jesus, his son. All those former ways God used to speak to his people were just the shadow of the great messenger, Jesus. See, Jesus is a better messenger. He's not just an errand boy for God. He is God in the flesh. He owns everything. He created all things. Whatever God is, Jesus is. He holds existence up with his power. He controls time and space and energy and matter, past, present, and future. They all obey his word, just like the winds and the waves obeyed him on the Sea of Galilee. He was and is so immensely powerful that he could take all the sins of the entire world upon himself. Think about that. Every wicked deed that was ever committed, he could pay for it with his death and then get back up and then go and sit back down at his throne in heaven and dust off his hands and say, it is finished. Jesus is better. We can look at the Old Testament sometimes and think about the parting of the Red Sea, and we can think about uh, the manna from heaven and all those different miracles and all those great prophets. But I'm here to tell you today, we live in a better time because we have a clear picture of Jesus, and Jesus is better. There was a group of Jews in that time that decided that they didn't believe that Jesus was God. They didn't want to go that far with Jesus. But they knew he was different, so they assumed that maybe he was just an angel. The Qumran community living near the Dead Sea had dropped completely out of society and established a religious commune that included the worship of angels into their brand of Reformed Judaism. And they even went as far to say that the angel Michael was of higher status than the Messiah. See, God's Word tells us that angels are messengers, in fact, Deuteronomy 33, 2 tells us that angels came to Moses and they brought the Ten Commandments, the old, te- uh, the old Covenant. But how much more impactful that God himself, Jesus, is the messenger that brought us the New Covenant. See, the author makes it clear that Jesus is much more and much better than an angel. Hebrews 1, 4 goes on, says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The author here says, look, angels are great and all, but they don't compare to Jesus. And if you need any proof, just look at what God said about the Messiah. And we see these quotes in these verses, which are quotes from the Old Testament. The author's quoting Psalms 2-7 when he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he's saying, look, angels are great, but God set Jesus apart. And God made it clear that the Messiah was more than just an angel. He was his son. And he also declared that angels would worship the Messiah when he came into this world, which was fulfilled on that Christmas night in Bethlehem. There's a word in verse 5 that I think it's important that we look at, and that's the word begotten. You're probably familiar with the word begotten from the traditional reading of uh, John 3.16, God's only begotten son. 
But that can be a confusing word. When you go into the genealogies in God's word that I'm sure we all really love to read, you're excited about those genealogies, right? Where we see that Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob and so on and so forth. But if Jesus had a beginning and was created, then he wasn't God because God is eternal. So let's look at verse 5 again where it says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. In this context, begotten can't possibly mean to physically birth because the one that is being begotten is being addressed. He therefore already exists before he is begotten. But there's many cults that misunderstand this verse and other verses like it to affirm that Jesus was somehow birthed into existence. The Mormon doctrine reads this. It says, Christ was begotten by an immortal father in the same way that mortal men are begotten by mortal fathers. Jehovah's Witnesses also use verses like this to prove in their mind that Jesus had a beginning in time. And it can be confusing, this verse, in our context. It seems as if it's stating that Jesus was created. However, the phraseology is important. He's speaking to Jesus when he says, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. See, this is not a creation, it's an inauguration. When a king put his son forward to rule, he, it was said that he was begotten. It was said that the king begot him. So this was not a birth, it was a crowning. He's making a distinction between the angels and Jesus because Jesus is far better than them. Verse 6, he says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. See, Jesus is firstborn in status, not first in created being. And the angels worship Jesus, so Jesus is clearly superior. Verse 7, it says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and he ministers a flame of fire, but. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Angels are messengers, and they communicated what God wanted them to communicate. But Jesus is far more than just a messenger. He is king, and he is the best king, righteous and fair, and he hates evil, and God has set him apart. Verse 10, it says, And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a roll, uh, robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. See, Jesus made the earth. He took part in the creation of the earth back at the beginning. And he never changes. But the earth wears out like an old t-shirt and one day he will fold this earth up and throw it in the back of the closet and everything will be made new. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
See, Jesus is better than the angels. Next, the author shifts gear a little bit, uh, and he begins to drill down on the importance of salvation. Why? Because you can be a longtime church member, and you can call yourself a, a Christian and still miss real salvation. See, it is a blessing and a curse that Christianity is so intertwined into our culture. See, the blessing is that we can talk about Jesus, and that's easy to do, and we face very little persecution. But it's also a curse because it's easy to call yourself a Christian and for it to not cost you anything. See, there's a difference between a deist and a Jesus follower. The deist believes that there is a God, but the Jesus follower bases their whole life on Jesus. A church-going, Bible-thumping, good old boy deist can still go to hell. So that's the question. Is all your hope in Jesus? Hebrews 2.1, he says, Therefore, we, much, uh, we must pay much closer attention to what we have learned and what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Drifting away here is a nautical term. A boat is going to drift away if it's not tied to a dock. And it's not enough just to be close to the dock. If we are not secure in the hope found in the gospel, our lives could be shipwrecked. So what is your life tied to? Verse 2 says, we know that the angels' message were reliable. And how much more reliable is the message of salvation brought to you by King Jesus? Verse 3 says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. You can't neglect salvation. It is essential. You can't miss the Messiah and please God. God gave us so much proof that there is no excuse. And you can fool your family and you can fool your pastor, but you can't fool God. You must be sure that your life is secured to the gospel. You must make sure that you have a relationship with Christ. You must make sure that you're not just drifting in this world close to the dock, but not secured to it. You can be a children's worker and a student life leader. You can be a deacon. You can be a generous giver and a good person and still neglect your own salvation. And if I were you and if that was you and you had this tinge of fear when you think about whether you're secure or not, if there's any doubt in that relationship with God, I would get that settled today once and for all. Because God loves you and he doesn't want that for you. He wants to have that relationship with you. And the only thing that can keep you from that is your pride. It's important. This message is important and it's so important that God personally came himself. He sent his son with this message of good news. Verse 5 says, it, uh, For it was not to angels that God su subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while 
lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. And at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We've established this order, right? Jesus is better than angels. But think on this. When Jesus left heaven, he made himself even lower than the angels. He came as a man. He came as an infant. And he restrained his ultimate power to walk around among us and walk around this earth so that an innocent man could die for all of us guilty people. He brought himself so low. Why would he care so much about man? But he did. And then through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God once again crowned his son in glory and honor, sending him once again at his rightful place in heaven. Verse 9 says, But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of, his, of the suffering of his death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom all things and by all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It makes sense that the one who made all things could redeem all things. And that through his death, he could show us his grace. Hebrews 2.14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Uh, skipping forward to chapter 3 and verse 18, it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus became flesh to be tempted like us. And since Jesus was fully man, we know that we can trust him. And because he was made of the same stuff we are, we know that he can deliver us because he delivered himself. He beat the devil, he destroyed death, and he freed us from lifelong slavery to sin. That ought to excite you. That ought to get you hyped up. That ought to get you a little bit gospel music pumping through your veins because God, once and for all, bought you back. He paid the debt of your sin, and he freed you from slavery. That's your Jesus. Have I mentioned that Jesus is better than the angels? It doesn't even compare. He doesn't even get close. And some of us sometimes think, well, I just wish an angel would just come down and tell me exactly what to do. Hey, you got something better. You have God's word through Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have something better. So don't neglect that salvation that can only be found in Christ. Tie your life to it. 
If you've given your life to Christ, then you don't have to worry about your relationship with God. You don't have to worry about the next life. Yes, you may have hard times and struggle now, but you can look at them and say, Jesus is better. You can look around at your neighbor and how they have a better house and a better car, a beach house and a boat, but you can look at the cross and say, Jesus is better. You might not have it all in this life, but you will have it all in the next because of what Jesus did for you. Why? Because Jesus is it all. Students, if you could drill down on this thought and drill down in your heart, you could avoid so many wasted years. And there's probably person after person that I could invite up on the stage that would say, hey, I didn't follow Jesus for a long time, and I messed up big time, and I wasted so much of my life using it on myself and trying to seek things that were ultimately empty. But if I could go back, I would say, don't do that. Don't make that mistake. Tie your life to Jesus. Don't drift away. Whatever the temptation is, Jesus is better. Everybody say that with me one time. You ready? Jesus is better. See, God is in control. Things are not out of his hands. They are under his feet. And there is always hope because King Jesus is on the throne and Jesus is better. So don't seek a feeling in your gut. Don't seek a sign from heaven or angels. Don't seek goosebumps or destiny or faith. uh, fate. Seek Jesus. He's a better messenger. And you can trust his words contained in the Holy Bible. Jesus is better. Very heads bowed and eyes closed. The band comes. This book of Hebrews is so chock full theology and doctrine and truth that we can base our life on. It can be really tempting to, uh, when we're thinking about our church experience, to really seek our feelings and our emotions to be stoked. We always got to make sure that ultimately what we're seeking is Jesus. And the way that you can know whether or not you're really seeking Jesus is whether or not it happens outside of this room. Do you have a time where you search God's words? Do you have time where you meditate on the promises of God? Do you have time in your daily Life, where you just cry out to God and you tell him what's going on in your life and you worship him and just tell him through who he is and you give him praise and you give him worship. If it doesn't happen outside of this room, then it's really not real. You really don't have the faith that you think you do. Jesus is a better messenger. Stop asking people on Facebook what to do about your family problems. Stop going to your best friend every time for advice first. You have the ear of God. 
It's good to get counsel and it's good to bounce ideas off of people. But the best thing to do is to get on your knees, cry out to God, search his word, say, God, I've got a problem, I've got a burden, and I can't handle it. I give it to you. Let's take a little time to do that this morning. We like to pause and digest God's word so we won't just skip past it. Altar's open this morning. God's moved on your heart. Whether you've got a family problem, whether you've got a a problem with your job or someone's health or just encourage you to come and lay it down. There's nothing magical up here. There's something special about saying, I don't care. God, I, I, I don't care what people think. I'm just going to cry out to you. Altar's open right now. You use your pew as well. You come now.